It's good to see you. Um, I got to tell you that listening to this passage from John chapter 3, which ends in the most famous pas- verse in all the Bible, you know, John 3.16. Listening to that passage, I, I was remembering this line in a novel by Wendell Berry by the name of, the name of the novel is Jaber Crow. And Jaber Crow was a barber. And he said one of the things he learned as a barber was there's always more that can be said than should be said. <laughs> Talking about people sitting in his chair, <laughs> telling him. <laughs> and he said, and there's always more that should be said than you've got time to say. I feel like when, I, when, we, when we hear passages like this, it's like an ocean. There is always more that can be said than I've got time to say or that I've got the ability to even know and say. And so what I'm going to do this morning is, um, in, in my, the image in my mind is that John chapter 3 is like a giant um, grain elevator. And all we can do this morning is reach in and take out a few spoonfuls. And that the rest of our lives, we could come back to this passage, right? Over and over. It's like the deepest part of the ocean, right? We can never get to the bottom of it. But there are three things in it that I do think it would be good for us as a church to pay attention to this morning. The first one is this. I'll tell you all three up front, and then I'll come back and we'll look at each one of them in particular. The first thing that comes out of John chapter 3 that I I think it'd be good for us to reflect on is that in this passage, Jesus makes it clear that he was going to die for the world and that his death was going to break the power of evil that holds the world in its grip and it was going to open the door to the new creation. The second thing we see that I want us to see is that every single one of us, child, teenager, adult, all of us are invited into that new creation. All of us have a responsibility not just to hear the story and to leave it there, but to respond to it. And the third thing is that responding to it is very rarely instant. It is almost always a process. Okay, so let's start with the first one. If you brought a copy of the Bible, turn to John chapter 3, the gospel passage that Wilson just read to us. John chapter 3, this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Notice what Jesus says in verse 14. He's trying to help Nicodemus understand what it means to be a Christian. And he goes to this Old Testament story that um, I think Bob read to us. He says, look, Nicodemus, maybe you can understand it this way. You know that story you've known your whole life, that weird story in the book of Numbers? And then he quotes, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So as as Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus understand a very hard-to-understand thing, he says, 
let's think, Nicodemus, about that thing, that weird thing with the snakes and the bites and all of that in the Old Testament. And, and so when we reflect back on that passage, think about this. Moses is commanded to make a serpent out of bronze, to put it on a pole, to lift it up. And anyone who was bitten by those serpents, anyone who was bitten by these serpents, he could look up at this pole and be saved. He could live. And so Jesus is saying that bronze serpent, lots of weirdness going on there. But one thing you need to see with it is that bronze serpent becomes the sign of two things. The problem, right? The problem is snakes are biting people and they're dying. So the, they look up and they see a, like a reminder of the problem. And they also, this, this bronze serpent on a pole also becomes a sign of God's solution to the problem. Looking up at it in some mysterious way produces their salvation. So Jesus takes Nicodemus back to this old, old story in order to help him see the underlying problem in our lives and in this world, which is evil and death, and that God is going to deal with it by Jesus being lifted up on a pole. That's his crucifixion. That What he's showing us is that the sin and death that have afflicted humankind are going to be drawn together at, at the one point of Jesus' crucifixion. So Jesus is talking about this before he gets to the cross, and he's trying to help Nicodemus. He's trying to help us. When, when we get to the cross, he's trying to help us understand what it's about. And that, that, that what's going to happen on the crucifixion is that the sin and the death that have afflicted humankind are going to be drawn together on the cross. And that everybody who gazes on that event and comes to realize that their own snake bites, their own sin, their own death are dealt with and, and solved on the cross in Jesus' crucifixion. And that leads directly to the most famous verse in the Bible. God loves this world so much. He loves it so much that he gives his only, his special son so that everybody who looks at his son crucified and believes that that is the love of God for the world will find themselves saved from the snake bite. This is the central fact of Jesus' life, that in him, God's kingdom, its love, its forgiveness, its salvation, that in him, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, God's kingdom arrives on earth. Now, that's the gospel. That's the news that is so, so good. That the true God, the world's creator, has loved this world so much, you and me included, that he has come himself in the person of his son, and he has died, and he has risen again in order to exhaust the power of evil, to heal this world, to make everything right and good and beautiful so that every sad thing will come untrue and all the sorrows will be replaced with joys. In Jesus, God's new day dawns. Now that's the first thing to see in this remarkable passage. 
The second thing to see is this. We all are invited to respond to that story. All through this conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus is not only teaching that his death and crucifixion opens the door to the new creation, he's also teaching us that he's holding that door open and he's inviting us to come into the new creation, come into this new world where sins are forgiven and you can draw down on on the love of God and forgive the sins of those who sin against you. Come into this new world and you don't have to be snake bit forever. Come into this new world and you can be delivered from all your anger and your resentment and all the things that are holding you in bondage. Walk through this door and the shackles fall off. And he's inviting all of us. He's holding the door open saying, come in. Life is so much better here. You see, a Christian is a person who responds to the work that God is doing in this world. And the work that God is doing in this world is he's healing this world. He's healing it by bringing his kingdom through Jesus. And he invites you and me to join him in that work. Listen again. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. His only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We must respond in order to come into the kingdom. You don't just slide into the kingdom by accident. Those of us who were raised in church, those of us who have never known a day apart from the love of God and the care and nurture of the church, we must respond to the gospel for ourselves. If you've been raised a Christian, you still have a serious and heavy responsibility to make real in your own life the truth of what happened in your baptism. Some people who grow up in the church, they assume that they've been converted because their background, because they go to church, because they serve in the church, because their parents are Christians. But remember, the utterly central fact of the Christian life is a living relationship with Jesus. And this comes through the work of the Spirit in your own heart. You must embrace this for yourself. You need to read John chapter 3 and imagine that's you talking to Jesus. And Jesus is laboring for you to understand that in him the kingdom of God has arrived. And you have to respond to this. All of us, teenagers, young people, it is so important that you respond to Jesus. It's crucial that we make a transition at some point in our life that we begin to find our primary identity in Christ. Our primary identity as members of his church. The church must become our primary family identity. You must begin to know that fundamentally, more than anything else, the truest thing about you is that you're a child of God. And you must begin to shift your primary confidence and your primary trust from your parents or your friends or yourself. You must begin to shift it to Jesus. He is your provider. Responding in faith to God means moving into dependency on God. 
to dependency on Jesus Christ and a responsibility to him to give your whole life to him, your loyalty and your obedience, to hear the story of the gospel and to, and to rise up from that with a response of love and gratitude and loyalty and trust and dependence. So, in this remarkable exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus, we see Jesus opening up the deep mystery of the gospel, that somehow his being raised up on this pole, this crucifixion, breaks the power of evil in the world, and he opens the door to new creation, and he invites us in it, but secondly, that we've got to respond to the invitation. I mean, can you imagine if I invited the Coors, hey, Coors, would you like to come over to my house today for lunch? Which you're not invited, by the way. This is just an example. Because we already invited a family. There's, not, there's no more. It's a big family. But imagine that I said, hey, Russ, Sarah, will you guys come over to our house for lunch? And imagine they do what they're doing right now. They just look at me and smile. Like, right? They don't say anything. They don't say yes. They don't say no. And I'm like, and so many people... That's what we do to Jesus, right? We hear this amazing story of the gospel, and we just look. We have a responsibility. Are we going to respond by accepting the invitation or not? And the third point is that for most people, the response is gradual. It's not like me inviting you to my house for lunch. It's more like me proposing to Janelle and her having to take a while to think about what's, what's being offered and if she wants to buy in on this or not, right? Responding is often a protracted process. Look, we see this when we pull back and we track Nicodemus through John's gospel. Because by the end of this conversation, do you know what Nicodemus does? You, you don't, because nobody knows what he does, because it doesn't tell us. But then the next time he shows up, the Pharisees are trying. He's a Pharisee, and the whole group of Pharisees are trying to get Jesus arrested. And he's like, now, wait, wait, wait a minute. I'm not sure. And he's beginning to resist the Pharisees. He's beginning to shift his primary allegiance from being a Pharisee. But, he, but he's not there fully. He's just, this comes up in chapter 7. And then the next time he comes up is in chapter 19, where he risks his own life to take care of the body of Jesus after he was crucified. And so as you track Nicodemus through John's gospel, you see that he's taking these baby steps, these baby steps. He's slowly, over time, converting. Now, conversion is almost always a lengthy process. There was this British study done in the 1980s, the late 80s and the early 90s, of Christians in England and of how they converted. And it showed that the majority of people took four years or more to convert. Now, I was raised in a tradition where at the end of every service, we gave people a chance to convert. And when people talked about becoming a Christian, the stories were often on this day, at this time, and this location. I remember I had this experience and I became a Christian. And it gave me, it gave a lot of people this idea that to become a Christian is to have this kind of instantaneous experience. The problem with that is that's the rarest way to convert. That's the fewest number of conversions. To explain to you what I'm trying to say, 
Janelle and I've told this story before years ago, but it's remarkable. It's true. It's not a preacher story. Janelle and I have this friend. Her name is Amanda. And she's, she's narcoleptic, all right? And she has, not only talking to her does she fall asleep on you, like, but she has the most remarkable wake-up routine of any human I've ever heard of. And here's how it goes. I'm not making this up, okay? So when she first begins to stir, her husband makes her a cup of coffee, and he brings it to her and the newspaper. After about 30 minutes, she takes a nap for about 15 or 20 minutes. And then she gets up and showers and dresses. And all the meanwhile, her husband is cooking her breakfast, preparing her lunch for work. And all in all, this process takes Amanda about two or two and a half hours every day. This is how they go through this. Now, that's an odd way to do it, but what's important about this story is that it shows how waking up is a process, and and, and any moment in there, Amanda's half awake, she's half asleep, eventually she comes to the day ready for a new day. Other people, we wake up in different ways, right? The alarm clock goes off, and we jump up in anger and fright. We've been dragged out of a deep sleep and we're facing the cold, cruel reality of a new day. And when we wake up in that way, it is rude and it is shocking. These two stories, we can see them in the conversion stories of the New Testament. For example, Paul. Paul converted sort of like the rude alarm clock story, right? There he was, he was riding down the road, headed toward Damascus, and he's suddenly blinded by a light. He's stunned, he's speechless, he he discovers that Jesus Christ is God. It shakes him to the core of his being, and he's yanked out of his sleep into the kingdom. And from that day, he never looked back. And there are some of us that that happens to us. People who wake up suddenly to embrace Christ. But the much more common story is Peter's story. Peter's conversion to Christianity played out over years. And it's similar to most people that I talk with about their own belief in Jesus. Over the course of months or years or some for decades, they gradually come to faith in Christ. There's an initial stirring, and then there's a long, slow process where you're half asleep or maybe half awake and somewhere in between. And like Peter, sometimes you're on the outside of Christianity looking in, and other times you're on the inside of it looking out, not sure if it's real or not. And becoming a Christian for most people is a pilgrimage. It's a journey. So when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he tells him that he must become a Christian. He must be born again. And he uses that metaphor, born again. In other words, it's like a birth. Janelle and I had five kids. Janelle gave birth to five kids. And um, some of them took a long time, you know, like a regular old birth. Um, Our fourth kid we thought was going to take a while, like the other three. She was born in the car. While I was driving, I look over to Janelle in the passenger seat, and she delivers Shay while I'm driving in one minute. And when I looked, and I saw that this, I looked at one moment, then I had to pay attention to traffic, and I looked back, and she's holding Shay. And I'm like, what in the world? And um, 
We, it, it was 18 minutes from our house to the midwife clinic we went to. And she gave birth. And, right? So we get there ahead of the midwife because at that moment, we, we increased our rate of travel, our speed of travel. So we expected the next child, our fifth child, to like be really fast. Oh, no. Shelby decides to take his time. He's born in a hot tub. It's just crazy. The fast birth of a child like that is rare. It's not common, thankfully, right? The fast conversion is rare. The more common conversion is like a birth. There's a lot going on. It takes place over time. Now look how Jesus sums up what it takes to convert. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him. Jesus sums up what it takes to accept the invitation with the word belief. This was like we saw last week, looking in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means simply believe the news that's good. What's the news that's good? That in Jesus, God defeated the evil of the world. Believe that. Believe that in his death and resurrection, God launched his kingdom. Believe the good news that there is hope for humankind. That as people hear the message and they respond to it by saying, I believe that. That's part of what it means. But it means more than that. And this is where our English word belief can kind of get us in trouble. What the early Christians meant by belief was not only believe that story, they also meant it in the way that if I was really sad and despairing and depressed and my wife said, Aubrey, I believe in you. Right? That's a thicker, that's a thicker thing, isn't it? And so to believe in Jesus is not it's, it's thicker than just believing that Jesus died and rose from the dead and he's God. But believing in Jesus is, is when Janelle says, I believe in you, Aubrey. She's saying, I trust you. I recognize the goodness in you. Believing in Jesus is, is responding to this incredible story that he stepped in front of the train for us. He took into himself the evil and the darkness and the snake bite. He absorbed it to break its power. To believe in Jesus is to hear that and to respond with love and trust. And part of what this means, that you, it means you accept his offer of forgiveness the, the offer of forgiveness that God gives us is he offers us a slate wiped clean. You can't build some staircase of good behavior of, of your achievements that earn God's forgiveness. It's looking up at, at him on the cross and believing that, he, that whatever happened there, and it's mysterious, but somehow, in some way, it gives us the opportunity to be forgiven by God. And so believing in Jesus is, is about accepting his offer of a slate wiped clean. But the fact that we can't earn God's favor shouldn't blind us to the fact that we're also called to obedience. When it comes to believing in God, that includes obedience. Paul, want, in fact, in Romans chapter 1, Paul calls it the obedience of faith. 
For the early Christians, believing in Jesus meant loving him and giving him your allegiance and your loyalty. So this process of converting is like a process of waking up. It's like the process of being born. There are all these things that are going on. It's about believing the news of the gospel. And it's about loving and giving your obedience and your trust and your loyalty to Jesus. And it's about repenting. There is no faith without repentance. Faith in Jesus is always demonstrated in repentance. To be a Christian is to recognize that since God's kingdom is something quite different from the path you've been on up until now, you have to come to grips with the fact that you've been living life by the rules of a different kingdom. To become a Christian, you're going to have to give up the way you've been going. For some of us, this is about turning away from our habit of pride. Our character trait of arrogance from controlling and manipulating. For others of us, it's going to be turning away from our shame and our guilt. For others, it's going to be coming to see that we've been living a very selfish life. For others, it's going to be about rejecting self-reliance and recognizing that you need your creator. For others, it's going to involve learning to live with a deference to God's will. Your will be done. Not my will be done. To repent is to admit to the deadliness of sin. To be born again, you must become acutely aware of your sin and respond to God's love by confessing that to him and accepting his forgiveness. To be a Christian is to hear the true story of the true God, the world's creator, that he has loved the world and you, and me, so much that he has come himself in the person of his son and has died and has risen again to exhaust the power of evil and to create a new world in which everything will be healed. Christian faith hears that story and responds with love and allegiance and loyalty. Yes, Lord, you died for me. You died for my sins. You died to deliver me from the things that shackle me that I can't deliver myself from. To be a Christian is to hear this story and to have a response of grateful love. To believe, to love, to obey, to repent. These are the signs that a new life has been born in God's kingdom. So what about you? What is God doing in your life? Where are you on your journey with God? Have you been born again? Have you been dragged out of a deep sleep? Or are you in process, half awake, half asleep, half converted, it is possible to start the conversion process 18, 19 years old, 7, 8 years old, and to stall out, to breach. And it is possible to live in that state for decades. The central fact of reality is that Christ has died on the cross, and he invites us to respond to that with a whole conversion 
Maybe you're stuck at the whole belief thing. This is weird stuff. You can't just bring yourself to believe that God became flesh and you're stuck there. Or, or maybe, maybe that's not hard for you. Maybe you totally believe, but you're stuck at the forgiveness part. As hard as you can try, at the end of the day, you cannot accept that your sins are just wiped clean. And you got all this other stuff. You're obeying him. You believe in that. But at the end of the day, you've never come to this place to accept that he forgives you. There are all kinds of places on this journey where people get stuck. But here's the deal. Wherever you are, don't stress. Don't let this sermon stress you out. Relax. Don't do the kind of relax that's like a lazy relaxing. Be patient and trust God to lead you. Chase down your doubts. Talk with a Christian friend. Contact me or Keith or Wilson or Laura or Bob or some of the the people in this church who you look and you can see and you can tell that they know Jesus. The journey of faith cannot happen alone. You need someone. You need to talk with other people who are down the road. Let's pray.